Striving and Thriving is the career development podcast inspiring you to make some bold changes. It's time to sweat the big stuff. Each week, we speak to industry figureheads at different stages of their journey to understand what it takes to successfully manage your career. I'm your host, Laura Johnson, and today I'm lucky enough to have Neil Gunning as my wonderful co-host. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by Adele. Okay, to get us started, Adele, can you tell us a little bit about your career background and your current role? Sure. So my career background is quite eclectic in some ways, but to me, there's been a clear thread to it. So I did a law degree and then a postgraduate in journalism. And I started out um, in a very small fledgling career in journalism, but quickly ended up in recruiting. And for me, the thread that pulls it all together is it's having an inquisitive mind and a love of people and wanting to tell people stories. So I think as most people um, do, I did slightly fall into recruitment. I started off working for a charity that supported the long-term unemployed and those with physical and mental difficulties, getting them back into employment. And that was really rewarding, but exceptionally hard. And then if I'm super honest, somebody just pointed out to me that I could become a headhunter and get paid quite a lot more money than I was <laughs> and have a quite an easier <laughs> client group to work with as well. So then I did headhunting in the UK for six years in an executive search company focused on fintechs. And then joyously, um, thanks to a job opportunity for my husband, we relocated to Australia. And that's when I really started to work internally and in early stage tech companies. So the first was safety culture during the hyper growth phase. And then with BCG Digital Ventures, where I placed not only their internal team, but also when they created startups, the founding team of those startups. And then that was when I got a bit captivated by really early stage business building and that initial team formation. And then there was the choice to join Antler. And when I did that, it was entirely unknown, unproven. People thought I was leaving BCG to go to a luggage brand. Everybody was really confused. <laughs> Um, but luckily it's working out. So um, what I'm doing now is bringing on the founders to our biannual cohorts. And to date, those have been people who are pre-idea. So it's running a recruiting function that attracts around 1,000 to 1,500 applications every six months, and then filtering those down to around the 80 to 100 founders that join our programs. And then in addition, we're now bringing on existing businesses as well. So it's honing our value proposition for those early stage companies who've been going for about six months. And then the piece of work that I'm super excited about is the Antlers now in 14 different locations. So we have this incredible global data set of who we're attracting to be founders who is getting onto our programs through the application process and interviewing, and then who we're actually investing in. And then we can track them, their success through to series A and beyond. So from this massive global data set, I'm trying to work out like what is founder DNA? Like what defines a founder? Like on the skill side, but also the human skill side. Sensational. I'm going to go way back to the beginning of that. I'm really, really curious. Law, then journalism, then recruitment. So the impetus to follow law, What, where did that come from? What was it that gave you that first interest in your academia? I think I just like finding out the answers to things. Um, and I think that's the inquisitive mind. And I really fell in love with the idea of being able to represent people and, and help them through knowing the answers. 
I got slightly disengaged though when I realised you could either have like the right of advocacy as a barrister or essentially mainly doing the paperwork <laughs> as a solicitor. <laughs> and I'm not particularly strong on the paperwork side, but then I didn't like that as a barrister, you only really got to know your clients for a day, you know, two days before. And so I didn't really feel like that gave me the right to tell their stories. And then the kind of the, the want to tell stories, then that's why I went Led into, into the journalism. Yeah. Wonderful. And so you, you said you had a fledgling career in journalism. Was that your newspaper, print, <sighs> something like that? What yeah, about that? it was. Um, so it's really tough to get into. I think that's quite a well-known <laughs> fact. And the best break I could get was in a non-league football newspaper. And for those <laughs> people that don't know English leagues, that's basically like Sunday's a lot of 50-year-old men drinking pints. Um, <laughs> hey, I used to read them religiously. <laughs> yeah, grassroots journalism. Um, yeah, and then and then it was just too hard to sustain. Like, the print industry was dying. If I'm honest, maybe I wasn't good enough either. Um, and, yeah, that then went into into um, working with them, with the charity supporting the long-term unemployed. And then, so, the, the learning journey. I mean, ultimately, it's, it's a wonderful learning journey going from law not feeling like you had enough data points to tell someone's story going into journalism because basically you feel like here's a medium by which you can start telling people's stories then going into something where you're directly pragmatically impacted by people's stories day to day mm -hmm. tell me about that learning journey that would have been i mean you're from functionally applying the written words to pragmatically dealing with people and who are in you know in a tough situation in a lot of occasions tell me about that learning journey that would have been quite tough the application of those skills in two different ways like that yeah, I think it's um, it's really listening and it's like specifically in that role working with the long-term unemployed, it was, you would get a report which would say like why they were long-term unemployed, which would be very like a factual account of they've applied to X many jobs, they haven't got X many interviews, therefore they don't have a job. Whereas actually when you started hearing their stories, it was about a multitude of other factors going on in their lives. And unless you could solve those, like you wouldn't even come close to solving the employment side. So I think it was my learning journey was really listening and asking questions to ensure that you know the whole situation because you can't solve something if you're only operating on a surface level and not getting to, to the root of it. Yeah. And I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, but in that kind of environment, you would have been made privy to so much bias on the other side, you know, the organizations who you're, you're trying to make connect the dots between those long-term unemployed people and those organizations. Mm. Um, uh, tell me about, you know, what you like the difference between that environment and that bias and, and conscious and unconscious that you might have seen and how you dealt with that, that would have been tough. Yeah, I think it's like, you know, in recruiting, we talk about um, like affinity bias and um, and a few others. And mm. it's basically like the halo effect when you're looking at certain mm. jobs, um, CVs, and they have, you know, all these high profile companies listed. It's basically the opposite of that. It's, it's people always assuming that, yeah, the person comes with a an additional amount of problems and negativity. The way that we then could deal with it at the time was incentivizing through government subsidies. It was the cheapest, simplest way to articulate why they should support these individuals. Um, but it wasn't really solving the problem. It was like, oh, well, I'll take them then because I'm getting a kickback. So then the cheaper labor yeah. for me. Um, whereas what you needed to do was like a much wider education piece around um, just, yeah, breaking down stereotypes. 
Did you find that the the original the studies and the, and the learnings from your law degree, the ability to sort of formulate cogent arguments, be quite balanced by approach and diplomatic in your in your style, all, all those sort of things that you would learn at that phase of your life, helped when tackling that? Like when you're dealing with organizations who you know aren't doing it with the best of intent, they're doing it because they're mm-hmm. getting a kickback. And of course, you're trying to persuade them on the benefits and so on. Did you find that that skill set was transferable and it helped when you were tackling that? Yeah, I did think it. I did think it helped, Neil. It's just that wasn't scalable. So I would have any one time responsible for about 300 individuals that would be having to have like weekly meetings with me that I'd be having to make sure they were doing X many interviews per week. And then I'd need to be speaking to the employers as well. And it just like that's such like a one to one scenario. So there's definitely a few people that I was able to help in that way. But and then help on the individuals, but then also help the employer as well to educate them around the benefit of, of these individuals. But yeah, it just wasn't scalable. Yeah, yeah. And then, and so what was the impetus behind um, making the leap from uh, the agency into uh, FinTech? You said exec search with uh, folks yeah. on FinTech. What was the impetus um, there? Honestly, it was just somebody just understanding what my job was and they were a headhunter and just saying, like, <laughs> <laughs> you're really going about this a hard way. Um <laughs> And I suppose I just got a bit, um, I did it for a year and a half. And I was like, I'm just not making an impact. I'm just too, like a very small, like young, inexperienced voice in this. And also it was in 2008, 2009, when obviously the economy uh, was just dying. Yeah, and see, yeah. <laughs> I had a lot of things against me on that one. Um, mm. And then, yeah, when somebody realized, pointed out to me that, you know, explained what executive search was, I just jumped into that. And I think that's when my career really started. And yeah, I got the opportunity to work in payments, which was an area that was really growing in the UK at the time. And I just loved, like with my clients, I think, well, I know what they liked about me was I just really had to understand the product. I had to understand like how it worked, why I was getting the competitive advantage, like why they were then going to acquire like this company next, because it gave them like the breadth across then the customer needs across like in-store and also online. I just got quite obsessive about needing to really understand and I think that at the time was rare in recruiting so I think it's it's come a long way in the last 10 years but historically I don't think recruiters were known for really going that deep in understanding um, the company and and their products so I think that's what gave me a really um, strong competitive advantage and yeah I did that for six years and was lucky to work with some major banks but then also for example when Braintree was starting out I was their exclusive recruiter and placed their European sales team and then a few other really early stage companies as well. Amazing so yeah I mean you, you dug deeper than most it sounds like you're willing to put in the hard yards to learn everything you need to know to make an impact what were the learning mechanisms how you know was it people around you was it online sources how did you absorb that how did you learn those things? I think that's where the inquisitive mind comes in and being a bit like a four-year-old being like, why, why, why? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of of questions, just um, a lot of questions on like, why? And I think that um, once you really show an interest and are asking sensible questions on the candidate side and also the client side, they just really like telling their stories. Like most people just like speaking about themselves or what they're building or what interests them. So I would, um, my core stats were always really high because I would just be on the phone for hours just asking why. And then, yeah, it was just being on top of all of like the news feeds and all of like the tech press and just really consuming as much as you can. Awesome. And then big shift, big life shift happens. 
You went mm-hmm. from the UK to Australia. You mentioned that it was uh, off the back of a great job offer for your husband. So we're talking geography changes and also job shifts, you know, changing the lens from external agency into internal. Was that a conscious leap? Was that, you know, was this a hey, new, new kind of environment, new job? What was mm. the, you know, tell me how that happened. Tell me the, the journey. I think this is something that gets said often. So at the times, our girls were one and three years old. And I neither of us had ever been to Australia before. So it was this massive leap into the dark <laughs> with a one and three year old. And it was really a chance to just think, if I am going to work, you become less incentivized purely by the commercial aspect of it and wanting to know that you're having more of an impact. And I just think chasing that yearly um, net fee income number wasn't doing it for me anymore. And again, like I just wanted to understand a bit more of the why, like why companies operated how they did, like what happened to these people when I put them in, um, like what impact did they make? So yeah, it was definitely a conscious step. I think I had quite a rude awakening <laughs> in that <laughs> your value as a recruiter is your your network and your understanding of the local market. And I had no network and I had no understanding of the local market. <laughs> um, but luckily, a few people really helped me out and got me up to speed really quickly. And I got interviews at, um, at Canva and Atlassian. And I think just once you're, especially in the Sydney market, in that kind of um, small community, then people start saying good things about you. And then the opportunity at Safety Culture arrived when Nick was setting up the team there, which I jumped at. So yeah, it was a re- it was definitely a conscious decision and one that I'm really thankful that I made. Amazing. So tell me, what were the biggest changes you had to make to your approach, to your style, to, you know, when you went from external to internal? Because I think from the outside in, I mean, I don't know if you've um, had it through your career so far, but people struggle to actually make the differentiation between an internal recruiter and an agency recruiter. They're all recruiters to the outside mm-hmm. world. So when, when you made that leap, how did that impact you? What were the changes, the mental changes, the physical changes, day-to-day changes that you had to make to make that transition effectively? It is such a leap. Um, your priority shift. So you're no longer chasing the number, um, which is mainly what I mean, especially when I was doing agency work, I I know it's changed slightly, but, or maybe it was the environment that I was in. It was incredibly metrics focused and all leading back to net fee income. I, my manager at the time, he would sit next to me. This was when I was agency side and he would say, Adele has not been on the phone for five minutes. Adele has not been on the phone for five minutes and 20 seconds. It has not been on the phone for five minutes and 40 seconds. And he would do that until I picked up the phone. It was just such an intensive, like KPI driven environment. And, and then going internally, like it's not about that anymore. It's like, well, what are the needs of the business? You need to understand what the needs of the business are. You need to, in my mind, become a lot more structured and long-term in your thinking. And you need to take on this entirely new thinking of like, how does this higher impact the team, the business? How do we measure them in terms of how long they stay and the impact that they have? And then how do we feed that back into recruiting? Like it's just such a more strategic and long-term approach than most of the time it is agency side. And you just get, I think what I loved about it is that you really get to understand one company in a lot of depth and then just, yeah, see how the highs that you make 
and what that means for them as individuals and then the team that they're in and then the company as a whole. And then you can get quite a lot structured around like organizational planning. Like if you want to, you can get into HR as well. Like HR is not my forte, but it does open up uh, doors like that as well. Awesome. So hold on, just to, to reverse back a little bit there. So Nick didn't give you how many candidates you had to call on a day-to-day basis? Come on, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was really getting to like, what is, so I focused on product and design and it was like, what's the story? How do we craft a story that's going to resonate with those individuals? How do we compete against, um, like at the time it was like Airtask, Canva and a few other companies. And we don't want to be competing on like the benefits package and the perks. We want to be competing on, on actually like the company's mission. So how do you like, what's your employer value proposition? Like, how do you really speak to these individuals? So it was a lot more of that strategic work. It was the move away from transactional dollars, yeah. ringing a bell whenever you get a fee. And it was a move away from that to thinking longer term, entrenching yourself into the business and, uh, yeah. and thinking, yeah, like you say, strategically longer term. What would you say? So since then, obviously, you've uh, you've been, you've been had some really successful stints in great organizations. What was the, the key learning that you took away, do you think, from that first role at Safety Culture that you've been able to then take to BCGDV and well, subsequently? I think it's... Um it's doing things before you're ready and backing yourself. So when I went for for BCGDV, like I knew I wanted to, so the career path I thought I was building for myself was to be a head of talent in a company that just was series, series A and was just about to go into hiring hyper growth phase. Mm-hmm. And so I was really conscious that I'd never hired engineers. And that was that's obviously a key component of that, knowing how to attract the best engineers. So that was the opportunity that arose at DV, but I had never done it before. Um, mm-hmm. But I just backed myself to go for it and be able to do it. And then at Antler, there's absolutely no way I'd really operated in the VC space and been able to build a recruitment engine that would attract 2,000 candidates to be able to bring in like 200 founders per year and then to be doing existing businesses and then everything that stemmed on from there. But yeah, I think what that experience at Safety Culture taught me was understand what your key skills are, how they're applicable, and then back yourself to work out the rest as you go. And also what I'd add into that is surround yourself by smart people. The team at Safety Culture were like the talent team was super smart and capable. And then obviously like at BCG and and then Antler, that's followed as well. And just if you can do that, you pick up so much from just working in that environment around those individuals as well organically. So I love the fact, I mean, you, you called out there something you hadn't done before and you basically just know, like, okay, I'm going to have to thrust myself into it. The, the hiring of engineers, you, you focus on product and design at, at Safety Culture. Tell us about the learnings. When you moved into this heavily, probably engineering-driven culture where you know that you're going to be building out lots of different organizations, how did that change your focus? How did that change how you go about doing what you do? Then you re- to gain credibility with engineers, you have to understand the technology, like learn the languages, learn the frameworks, learn what's current, learn what's outdated, learn why as well, like why you would use um, certain ones in, in certain environments. And that's how you, you gain respect in that area. And also adapt your style. So I know that I can be like, quite energized and quite loud and quite passionate. Um, and that's awesome in some environments, but that's not necessarily how you should initiate conversations with all individuals. So I learned to also adapt my style and and rather than going in on like, this is so exciting, be 
stickers. <laughs> it's like, hey, like, what are you currently working with? Tell me about that. Why does that interest you? And like, oh, well, this is how it will apply in this context. So yeah, those are the, the main two things. But certainly like with engineers, my first point is like learn what they do, learn why it's important and learn what would interest them in an next move and gaining the respect of the actual engineers within an organization. They will then help you so much more when it comes to doing interviews, when it comes to do code tests. Like it's on you to learn like why that code test was scored in that way. And then you can just feed that back in and become a better recruiter. Okay, and I'm going to just keep going to the next one. So that, what, is the, what was the key learning from Antler then? So, you know, you went into safety culture. That was the, the lane in the sand where your entire lens shifted from transactional to strategic. You, you then thought, okay, engineering and technical, that's going to be the next leap. Into Antler, we're talking something that isn't the, your, your founder cohort. It's not deeply rooted in a functional capability. It's a type of person. I mean, tell me how that then shifted your lens again and what, what some of the key learnings and growth opportunities have been since you joined Antler. So I thought when I was recruiting for BCG Digital Ventures that that was like the top tier. Like those were like the creme to the creme, like mm. the highest caliber of individuals that I could be speaking with. And then going to Antler... I then got to see this other additional level of people and they are that because they are not motivated by money. They're not motivated by money, job titles, perks in any way. They're motivated by this intrinsic belief that they can change the world and they have the skills to do that. And when you start speaking to that group of people all day, every day, it is just like absolutely fascinating and incredibly fulfilling. And what you're then doing is just enabling people to achieve lifelong ambitions, or if they don't do that, at least setting like the framework around them so they can give it like a really good shot. And, and that's what I, that's what I love about Antler is just speaking to people who are just motivated by like literally an intrinsic belief that they can change the world and have the skills to do it. And I now don't know if I could go back from speaking with anybody else. <laughs> I love it. That's very it, cool. Um, and then look, at the end of the day, like you say, you are enabling that. It's, um, yeah. uh, and I mean, it's a key thing that you look for. I mean, again, you know, uh, one founder could be deeply, deeply technical from an engineering perspective. Another founder could be very spiritual. Uh, another founder could be, you know, there's no, it's not something that is as black and white as functional capability. What do you look for? What do you think is the recipe for entrepreneurial capability the ability to actually go and change the world so what we do now is we interview like 50 50 on, on skills and sorry is in like hard skills and then the other 50 percent is on like human skills and and motivations and with the the 50 that's on hard skills it's like you have to have the skills relevant to early stage business building so you have to um, either be able to put the business model behind something or the go-to-market strategy or you have to be the engineer who can build from scratch and architect systems from scratch or you need to come with an idea that stems from deep unique insight or let's say university ip but then equal to that is the factors that we've identified are intelligence and how we define intelligence is having the ability to creatively problem solve so a company is not stable until it gets to series a like that can take two to four years and so for a founder to get to that point they have to be continuously solving problems and the company will change many times until they reach that so that's 
like intelligence, not that would show up on necessarily an aptitude test. It's intelligence as in like, I can continuously creatively solve this problem. And then the second part is like a relentless cadence of execution. So it's like, you just have to be able to push out a lot of high quality work. And then in some ways, like that's a McKinsey consultant or someone who's been to INSEAD. And to be honest with you, we've had like really 50-50 experiences with those individuals because some of them can translate that relentless cadence of execution from like recommendations to actual output and other ones just still get a bit stuck in the in the analysis um, and the research phase. But if you can move into that actual like meaningful output of like test and learn, then it's incredible. And then the third is just being comfortable with risk and comfortable with like an ever-changing environment where there's continuous failure and you're not going to know all of the answers, but you just have to keep moving forwards. I think you don't know any of the answers just to jump in there. (laughs) (laughs) If you're okay with not knowing what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, then like, it's cool. (laughs) I think going back to your point though earlier, when you said about being surrounded by great individuals, I think that for me is a big benefit of antler because like you say when like you get so energized by interviewing those people but then when you put those people together even if your idea isn't then or you know isn't going to happen now you've got these great amazing people that you know whenever it is the right time you've got that network ready to go and you've already got that energy and like you do really like you just feed off each other's energy in that kind of situation yeah i describe the antler joining the antler cohort as in the worst outcome that you can get is that you have a major life experience with a group of exceptionally talented and driven individuals. So I liken it to whenever you have like an extreme point in your life where you're trying really hard to achieve something. So let's say that's having a baby or going to university, that group around you often become like lifelong friends and door openers for you. So really the worst outcome that you can have is what you just described, Laura, is where you get to form relationships with like around you 80 individuals who were all going through this momentous life occasion, like really striving to build a business. And that will form like, yeah, lifelong connections. And if you haven't got it right at this point, like just keep trying and hopefully it will happen for you in the future. And this group of individuals will enable you. Um, You've gone through a sensational learning journey, Adele, from law, journalism, different types of recruitment, and then recruitment in various and what looks like very different ways. What do you know now that if you could go back to your when you just came out of your law degree? What do you know now uh, that you would give yourself of then uh, as advice? Uh, What would you tell yourself, you know, way back when you were in between law and journalism? I'm really frustrated that this is something that I still do to myself is put barriers that are not there on top of you. So it was I had thought about going agency side when I was back in the UK, but I was like, oh, but I don't have experience of doing that. Like I've never, I don't have any HR skills. Like it's not needed. I still don't have any HR skills really. And then also <laughs> going into, <laughs> going into, um, to, I suppose I tried to solve it for myself. But like I had this, like I can't become a head of talent without having hired engineers. And like then I took action to solve that. But also like coming into VC, like I still put this like, ceiling upon myself as in like oh but I haven't come from a finance background can I take on this part of the business and like yes I can because the value that is understanding the value that you're then giving so I wish my what I tell my younger self is to not put barriers there that don't exist but I will call myself out on it because I know I still I still do do that with myself occasionally and I think the best way 
to stop that. Like I'm a big believer in you can't be what you can't see, which is why I support and really praise so many of the women around me, because I think that's a great way of us showcasing the path into um, entrepreneurship and, and more technical roles for women. But as a current example, like I felt, oh, I'm now in Antler at director level, like that's where I'll be. Like I can't be an associate partner because I come from recruiting. But now one of our directors, Pranar in Singapore, has become an associate partner in a VC, having been a recruiter all of her life. And it's like, oh, I can see it. Now for I know I can be it. And but that was just a barrier that just didn't exist that I had put upon myself. And um, yeah, it was entirely invalid. I think it goes to a point earlier though you were saying about backing yourself. Like, you know, sometimes you just have to back yourself. It doesn't matter that you haven't done it. You know, it's that belief that you've worked out so far. Like if you say every role you've had, you've not necessarily done before, but you've thrown yourself at it. You've backed yourself at it. And just remembering that bit rather than the kind of imaginary barriers we give ourselves. Yeah. And they're, they're so silly, right? Like they're so silly. It's like, what is Antler is actually primarily a talent organization. So I'm not trying to take anything away from any other part of the business, but like if we have exceptional founders and we do average programs, we will still get exceptional businesses. It's a lot harder to get average founders in an exceptional program and then have exceptional businesses. So it really is, I know that it's a talent first organization, yet I still put this barrier on myself that even though like that is my core skill, what I have 10 years of experience in because I don't have finance, like, oh, that's not me then. It's frustrating, eh? Um, It's a sensational bit of advice. It is. Okay then, so just to wrap up, who else would you want to hear from in a future podcast? I think that I'm really proud to be part of an organization like Antler, who are not only removing the barriers to entrepreneurship for women founders, but also for actually women working in VC. So amazingly, um, at Antler, 42% of our leadership is actually women, but there are very, very few women in VC roles. So I would love to hear from any of the awesome women that we do have who are operating in this space. I think there's a few um, obvious ones like Jack's at, at Airtree or like Lauren at Startmate, but even some more of maybe like the rising stars and, and, and unsung heroes in VC, because I also firmly believe that until we have more diversity of thought in the decision makers, in the investment committees, we are still going to create average businesses. Like what VC is built on is the power law, which means that we have to find the outliers. Like we have to find the people who like are going after like markets that we don't even know exist yet, who are solving the problems that are you know, very future thinking. And to do that, we need a real diversity of thought on investment committees. So that's why I think it's important that we raise the profile of women in VC, but also um, people from all walks of life. And today, frustratingly, it is still quite a male dominated finance background focused environment. That's awesome. Thank you. And thank you for this morning. It's been great. Want to know more about how to get ahead? Be sure to check out Strivin.io for career development tools and mentorships to guide you through. Strivin and Thrivin. 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 Striving and Thriving. Strivin and Thrivin. Strivin and Thrivin. Strivin and Thrivin. Striving and thriving. Striving and thriving. Striving and thriving. Striving and thriving.